Welcome to Money and Taxes from BB to XYZ. I'm Regina Neenan, Certified Financial Planner. And I'm Jason Spessiner, Certified Financial Planner and Enrolled Agent. So today we are going a little bit back to basics. We're going to talk about money in the bank. And that sounds like a great thing, right? Well, generally, you hope your investments grow, but money in savings at the bank, you see that growth more tangibly when you have the interest that they're paying. You can know what's coming in. It tends to be lower, of course, in the long run than what you would get if you took some risks with those dollars. But yeah, you get to see it happen. I totally get that tangibility piece because I know you've heard me talk about the free money days, the days every quarter when my bank pays interest, and I can see the exact amount that I get, and it's great, and I have this little celebration. Right now, we are recording this on June 30th, and uh, tomorrow is actually free money day, so I'm getting very excited about that. But one thing that I know people have to be really strategic about is seeing that money grow. Because when you are you know, earning that interest on your savings account and it's building up and building up, it can just sit idle. So you have to really put some thought into it and not just think, you know, it's in the savings account. I'm not going to consider it. It's just going to sit there. So what do you do? Yeah, because initially it's not necessarily how much interest you're earning, right? But it's how much you're saving because it's those first little bits of, of interest that come in on a smaller amount, a balance that you have set aside as your cash reserve. It's not going to seem like much, but as you add those dollars, as you contribute maybe automatically to that savings account and that interest grows along with your principal contributions, all of a sudden you're going to see some sizable and meaningful amounts that are added on that free money day, which I, I do love free money day. So Jason, when it comes to interest on that money in the bank that we all hope we're getting, how is that taxed? That's a great question. And it's really straightforward. The money in the bank came from a taxable source in almost all cases, right? Unless you get an inheritance or a gift, and then that's not taxable. But once you deposit that money in the bank, it came from your paycheck, from your earnings. That money's what we call already been taxed money. Now, from there, it's going to earn interest. And it's that interest that is going to be taxable to you. So if you have $1,000 in the bank and you earn your 4% interest, that $40 is what's going to show up on that 1099. And that's what you'll have to pay tax on. There's no preference for interest income. It's taxed just like any other sort of income. And so it's something to keep in mind as you consider how much to keep in the bank and how much interest income you're going to have to pay tax on. Yeah. And what tax bracket you're in and how that could shake out versus capital gains if you were to invest that in the stock market, right? There is some differences there. Exactly right. So if you do have, for example, stock market earnings, if it's dividends, it's capital gains, right? Those are preferential. If maybe you earn a return or cash flow off an investment property, which is by itself sort of this self-contained, very tax-efficient way to grow money, both of those things may have less tax consequence, believe it or not, than just earning regular interest in the bank. Yeah. So I definitely am seeing this more, but strategy, even your money in the bank requires your financial planning strategy to dictate how much and how that interacts with your tax strategy specifically. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. I know when I was really starting to build my savings, you know, it'd be a couple pennies here and there, less than a dollar. And then it started to get into the single digit dollars and then the double digits. And yeah, it's really something to look forward to now. Um, but like you said, it's not always a heck of a lot. So is it a great place to keep your money? Well, I mean, I guess it sort of depends on where, right? And and you'll see this now. You have this difference between what some banks and usually the national, the large, what sometimes are referred to as the too big to fail banks paying very, very little, less than 1%, less than a half a percent. And then you'll have the high yield savings accounts 
which over the last couple of decades have become a much larger presence with this whole idea of online banking. And so you have these high yield savings accounts that you could go to a website like Bankrate or NerdWallet and look up a chart of high yield savings and find plenty of banks right now offering interest four, four and a half percent or higher. And so that's the sort of effect that we've had here is you have to be pretty conscientious about how and where you are making these deposits to get the highest interest rate or else, yeah, you could end up with a savings fund that is just not really being that productive at all. We always say, have your money work for you. And a lot of that is about placement. And lately, I've heard about online banks having higher interest rates because they're not paying to have physical locations open where people can come in and take care of their transactions. So it's really important to choose what's right for you. You know, if you have an online bank, you're not going to be able to go down the street or to the other side of the city and go in and talk to a person face to face and take a cash withdrawal. So you really have to balance um, accessibility with that interest rate. But let's go back to the topic at hand here, money in the bank, and let's kind of break it down by generations to discuss what options folks should have with those excess dollars and really how to begin saving if they haven't built up that emergency fund yet. I like it. I like it. And and let's start with our baby boomers because this is where I think you have the most control and flexibility with those dollars in the bank because what it allows you to do is not only utilize these already taxed, saved dollars that are hopefully earning that four, four and a half percent now, but it gives you that opportunity to use those, keep your tax bill very low. Because remember, this money is already taxed. You're paying tax on the interest, sure. But if you need to take out a certain lump sum in cash to supplement another income source, to do a home improvement project, to take that trip that you've been planning on for years, whatever it is, that is a low tax event. And it allows you to save those other, I'll use the term buckets for later. So if you have your IRA, uh, your Roth IRA, or some other vehicle that would have different tax consequences, you gain this control over those dollars by utilizing that money that's already in the bank and setting that aside for expenses or needs that are current and letting those other dollars grow for the longer term sort of stuff. Absolutely. So here comes in our strategy again. So let's say that you've got all of those other things taken care of. What should you do with the excess? Maybe invest it? Well, potentially have the opportunity for some higher returns. I mean, if you think about what your needs are within the next 6, 12, 18 months, as you start to get in that longer range, 18 months and longer, you can really start to think about what other opportunities are out there. Can you earn more on that money in the long run? Now, with today's interest rate environment, if you want to keep that money also risk-free, you're probably still in that shorter term. You might look at a treasury bill that might pay you know, five or five and a half percent, but that's still going to be a three to six month proposition. But once you start thinking longer in that two, three, four, five, six year range, then you have that opportunity to invest those dollars because realistically, if you're not going to use them for six years, you may find that you can still outpace what a bank interest or what a treasury bill would pay you today. And Jason, I heard you mention, you know, like three to six months. And that's because some of these other investment options have some consequences that maybe your regular savings account doesn't. So say that you needed cash, but you are maybe locked into one of these investments for a longer time period. What could happen? Well, that's a good point. And think about it. For example, if you're talking about like a treasury bill, it's very sort of similar to a CD. You get that yield if you hold that treasury bill until maturity. So if you need to sell it beforehand, this is where that whole 
idea of when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. Well, if you're trying to sell a treasury bill that has a lower interest rate than someone else could get today from another person, you may not sell that treasury bill back at its maximum value. And so you could have some loss there. So you have to be ready to understand that you at least want to commit to the term or the maturity of that treasury when you buy it. If you can't do that, then again, going back to just money in the bank, that's where it makes the most sense to keep those dollars. Yeah. And I feel like that extends really to folks in every generation. Use your savings at the bank as a place to park cash for your more immediate needs. And again, a little bit of balance there, making sure that the dollars that you're going to need up front sooner than later, keep those more liquid, even though you know we're talking about all more liquid forms of keeping cash, there are still kind of different levels that vary depending on where that cash is parked. Right on. And that really leads us into our Gen Xers here. Once again, balance with that time frame. You know, if you're not going to need the cash for, you know, 18 months or so, you have regular income coming in, it might be a good idea to invest the the excess cash that you're not going to need for a while. And remember, again, back to Gen X or high earners. And I like to think about this. If you're not making the most out of your tax-efficient savings vehicles, but you have created a surplus of cash in the bank, this is where you can employ the strategy of using that cash in the bank to supplement your excess savings. When you turn on, for example, maxing out that 401k at 30,000 a year, or if you're fortunate enough to be in a public service organization doing that twice um, with a 403b and a 457 plan, but use those dollars, those already tax dollars in the bank to supplement that tax deferred or sometimes tax-free savings if you're going the Roth route so that you don't see that disruption, but you also Just move dollars on your own personal balance sheet from one side in this cash savings bucket over to your long-term investing side when you know you've already accounted for all of the shorter-term needs that you have. Definitely. So it's really becoming clear to me that we're talking a lot about how unique this can be depending on your situation. So it's a little more difficult to say, here's the rule. Keep this much in your emergency savings or keep this many months in your emergency savings or keep this percentage of your income in your emergency savings. So it can be really helpful to work with somebody to dial in what your expenses are and how much you should be keeping in your emergency savings or your savings at the bank so that if something happened, you would have that to rely on. And when you're thinking about emergency savings, think about what you're describing there, right? You're talking about money that is needed for one-time large unexpected expenses, money that is needed to supplement income disruption. And so depending on your circumstance, whether or not you are single income, dual income, whether or not you have children, how your income is earned, are you an employee, are you self-employed, the range can just get really, really large. You can go from three months to 12 months and sometimes even longer, again, simply dependent on those circumstances. And so you do need at least a check-in on what actually makes up a, a good emergency reserve for your situation. And savings at the bank goes even further beyond that, because as we mentioned earlier, you may also want to keep that cash liquid, readily available in case you have a big goal coming up. So that just makes it very even further, whether it's just your emergency fund or a combination of emergency and the money that you're going to need to accomplish goals within the next 12 to 18 months or potentially slightly longer. Now, 
I think we're going to get into one of my favorite terms, but as we start to talk about goals, and maybe this is a good time to pivot into our Gen Y, our millennials, but we have goals and then we also have future opportunities. And so our savings becomes our emergency fund, but also our future opportunities fund, or as we like to call our EFOF our Emergency and Future Opportunities Fund. Yes, we we love the EFOF over here at Financial Planning Fort Collins. We're trying to make it a thing. And it's something that everybody should have. You really need that EFOF, Emergency and Future Opportunities Fund, as your financial foundation. It's really the backbone of all of your financial planning. And so, you know, I know I have mine. Jason, can you speak to your EFOF a little bit? I use my EFOF specifically for those future opportunities. And let me give you a good example of what a future opportunity could be. So say, for example, you have a tax deadline coming up to make a contribution to a certain plan. Maybe you need to top off, for example, a Roth IRA, an HSA. Maybe you need to get your 401k maxed out for the year. You use your EFOF, your future opportunity portion of your EFOF, to supplement whatever income or whatever dollars you need to redirect or put into that plan. So you're just moving money again around on your balance sheet to say, I need to contribute another $5,000 to my HSA this year. You take that money out of that EFOF and put it in there because that deadline comes and goes. Once that deadline passes, you have no additional opportunity to do that. So this is the chance. This is the, the last stop on that road to make that contribution. Use the Future Opportunity Fund to do that and then replenish it in time. I feel like you just described my EFOF, my savings account at my credit union. I know one thing that I do is I keep a little note in my phone that mentions my balance, what I need to have in my EFOF for the actual emergency piece, and then my future opportunities, which includes my Roth IRA contribution for the following year, along with some other goals that I know I'm going to want to accomplish within the next 12 months. So thank you for breaking that down for us. Absolutely. Also, other things that millennials might see is you're at the age where you're receiving gifts from family. You maybe receive an inheritance from family. And what do you do with those dollars? Because sometimes that comes in in cash. And whether or not you add that to your EFOF or if you invest it, again, comes back to how you determine how much should be in your EFOF, whether it should include your future contributions to various plans like a Roth IRA, whether it should be three months, six months, and so on. You really want to consider when you receive a large cash infusion of whatever source, how much of that should be there to top off the EFOF and then how much should be going towards those future goals. And it's important to keep in mind that, you know, say you get a gift or your savings has been building up for a while, there's a point where your EFOF can be too big for you personally. You might have more in there than you would need for your EFOF and those near-term opportunities. But you also might be getting closer to uh, the FDIC insurance levels. So uh, you got to be careful. If you're the only one named on your account, you have $250,000 of insurance on those dollars in a bank or in a credit union. So if you start to get close to that line um, and the bank fails, which I know we've been hearing a lot about in the news lately, you may not be entitled to the amount over that insured amount of 250 k And as we all saw, right, with the recent bank failure, Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, the idea that some institutions, some people, some places had more dollars than was covered by FDIC and that there was uh, sort of a backstop put into place to make sure that no one was going to not be made whole in that scenario 
again, FDIC is still very specific of the limits. So you should still be careful, even though a backstop may come in and sort of save you, right? This is supposed to be risk-free cash in the bank. Be mindful of the FDIC insurance limits or look for a platform that aggregates deposit accounts and allows you to increase those limits that can give you sometimes many fold over the regular limits. And they're out there. They exist. We have a platform we can invite clients to that does that and gets the limit, I think, up to almost $3 million. But again, if you have that much cash in the bank, there's got to be a good reason for it. You got to be working on a house purchase that's going to close in the next six months or something along those lines, because these are really massive dollars of just cash in the bank. Yeah. So wherever you're at with cash in the bank, be strategic, be thoughtful, always keep in mind kind of what your EFOF max is. And then also, of course, be mindful of those insurance levels. But let's go to those maybe in Gen Z who are starting to build their EFOFs. Maybe they haven't reached that cap amount for themselves there. Yeah. A a dollar a day makes the savings work. Anything you can get going, build it little by little. It's really something that you need to start seeing the progress on. And nothing is better than seeing $1 become two, two become two and a quarter because you got that interest deposit. It just keeps going up and up, but you have to start somewhere. So even if it feels like you're not making much of an impact, you are. Every bit you can save and set aside to build that first layer of foundational financial planning success in building this EFOF, it's just super important. Yeah. And I know some of our listeners might have heard that, you know, start with a dollar a day and be thinking, where is that going to get me? How is that going to work? But it really does start with setting reasonable goals and sticking to them, really building those good habits so that you can continue to see your emergency fund grow. But then also keeping in mind, if one of those opportunities comes along, it's there so that you can drain it or at least part of it, to take advantage of things that come your way. And then you can, with those great habits that you've built, refill it, backfill it, and get it back to where it needs to be. So one thing that I tend to see people run into is saying, okay, you know, I just hit my my EFOF goal, my emergency fund goal. It's great. But then they're afraid to use it when the time comes. So Also, keep in mind what it is there for and uh, don't be afraid to rely on it. You've done the hard work to build it or maybe you're doing the hard work right now. Use it for its purpose. And knowing the, what I like to call order of operations with your saving will help give you that permission to know when it's appropriate to use your EFOF and when it's not. Knowing that you have it in place, that you've taken care of that foundation that I talked about and you've built this, let's just say you need six months of expenses as your emergency fund. And let's say that you've identified that you want to make sure you have the cash available for your Roth IRA. Well, now, once you've reached those dollar amounts, you know that you have that baseline. You know then when is the appropriate time to not only utilize those dollars, but then also what to do with the next dollars coming in. So perhaps you look at once you've built this foundational success, then you move on to contributing to that Roth IRA, contributing to that employer-sponsored matching plan like a 401k, when it makes sense to contribute to your HSA and so on. And so you can start to build in the confidence to know exactly what needs to go where and when just by simply understanding how much your needs are in the short term versus the long term and going from there. Yeah. And always keeping those amounts really dialed in to know what your EFOF threshold is when you reach a certain dollar amount then you move on to the next. And where does that go and how much goes there? All parts of the beautiful pieces of financial planning. That's right. Well, let's let's talk about today's takeaways. And the first one here is that money in the bank is not always a bad thing. You want to keep an appropriate EFOF. 
Absolutely. And if you're just getting started to build that emergency and future opportunities fund, that EFOF, no matter which generation you're in, start by building good habits. Make those regular contributions. Make sure they're reasonable amounts that you can really stick with and automate it. There's so much technology now. Jason, you were just telling me about your Apple Card and Apple Savings. That's built right into your phone. So if you can automate your savings, go for it. It makes building that EFOF so much easier. But then also keep an eye out for when that balance grows a little bit too big in your bank savings. Yeah, because you have to consider, and this is number three, your timeline for cash in the bank. If you start to realize that you have more than this 18 months or so of needs, right? If you're just really getting along in the tooth and you could just survive on cash in the bank for a long time, years in some cases, it might be time to look at how to make those dollars a little bit more productive in the long term. And so that's a good chance there to, again, evaluate it and make sure that you're being prudent with your investing. Now, uh, if you have an idea for a future podcast episode, or if you want to tell us all about your EFOF and the awesome things that you're using it for, feel free to give us some feedback. You can reach out to us at podcast at fpfoco.com, and you'll find that email in the show notes as well. All right. Well, hey, thanks for joining us today, and we'll talk to you soon. Jason Spessner and Regina Neenan are investment advisor representatives of Financial Planning Fort Collins, a registered investment advisor. The information in this podcast is provided for general educational and entertainment purposes only. It may not apply to you or your specific circumstances and should not be considered financial, investment, or tax advice. No, you eat Oh, no, you, Eva. <laughs> <laughs>